0: Alright, hey Northwest Kids. It is time for Camp Northwest Kids. See a few of our awesome elementary schoolers have already made their way to the back. If you're going to Camp Northwest Kids, be sure to head back there. Now, parents, as they're leaving, I need to tell you something. Our children, my children, Isaac and Zoe, thought it was not fair that all of Camp Northwest Kids has mascots and that we didn't have a mascot. Oh. Appropriate, right? We got Falcons. We got tiger sharks, and is it rabbits? I think it's rabbits. And so my kids were telling me the day that we came out here and saw what the awesome crew did in putting up our sun sails, which I can't wait to see this one at work today. I might have to shift because I still see the sun could peek through. But my kids looked up and they said, Dad, they look like stingrays. We think the parents go to Stingray Church. While we go to our Camp Northwest themes, the adults are at Stingray Church. So as we drive by and come up to church every week and as we talk about things, my kids have been liking telling me that, that, that they're kind of jealous that, that we get the Stingrays and, and they just get tense. So I thought I should tell you that. I don't know if any of you parents knew this, uh, that your kids might also be giving us a mascot up here at, at, at Big Church. Um, and those of you that didn't know that our kids have mascots, we're, we're really embracing the camp theme. And we're, we're really going with it back there. It's been a lot of fun. So anyways, welcome to Stingray Church. Ah uh, yes, that was uh, that was not planned. That's just the transition to get those big kids out of here, and they're gonna go have a great time back in the field. Um, so uh, this morning we're uh, we're we're transitioning. Uh, I loved how Aaron described it last week. Uh, that we've kind of been in an action movie. The first eighteen chapters of Exodus is an action movie, and and here we kind of like hit the. It's not just like the like the slowdown button. It's almost like a pause button. Um, and, and we're going to pause for a while here in the law. And as, as Ryan brought up in a couple, a couple weeks ago and Aaron brought last week, um, we've been covering multiple chapters of time. We've been working through this narrative. We've been seeing what God has done uh, to get us to where we are. And, and today, we're you might have noticed, like, the, the Church Center app has, like, it's got, like, three verses in there. And really, we're going to focus in on just one of those verses. Um, you'll see that we're going to focus in today on Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and specifically verse 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. As we look at the Ten Commandments over the next several weeks, it's going to be a week-by-week journey. We're going to be looking at a clear picture of what we're going to call God's moral law. And you're going to see that these laws have uh, have multiple purposes in our lives. Uh, one of the purposes of these laws is going to be to show us what God is like, and what He expects of us. What it looks like to live in partnership with Him in His kingdom. It's also going to be kind of revealing, as you're going to see, as we're going to talk through things that show us our own hearts, that show us our own lives, that cause us to examine ourselves, to see ourselves in light of who God is, and. Uh, And that's going to be tricky at times. It's going to cause us to reflect. It's going to cause us to be challenged. It's going to cause us to be convicted and also to rejoice in in who God is and and as as Matt was just talking about, in his holiness and in his perfection and, and that we get to be part of that. And I want to, before uh, we continue on, sorry, this cord is driving me crazy. Uh, Before we continue on, I want to reference back. If you didn't see Ryan's video this week, you should go back and watch it. It was just an eight-minute video in the E! News uh, or in the Church Life Slack channel. And he gave us three categories that the law fits into. Because I think there's a lot of times we can look at this, and and you've probably heard the debates, and this gets down rabbit trails we're not going to go down today, but how does the law apply to a believer in the New Testament? How does the law apply to someone who's following King Jesus and not living under the law anymore? And Ryan helped us have three categories for that. He references that there are some laws that we're going to see that are ceremonial laws. Uh, Those are laws that describe the rituals and the sacrifices and the practices which related to worshiping God, being able to be in relationship with God. And those are things that are really important for us to understand, but those are not things that we follow today in the same way that they followed them in the Old Testament. You're also going to see that some of the laws uh, that oftentimes become sticking points are are what we might refer to as civil laws. Uh, There are things that God put in the law because... Israel was becoming its own nation. It was becoming its own kingdom. And so in that, the law had to also govern that nation. That's why there's laws about the boundaries and the marking places. Those don't quite apply today. We have the town of Kerry to do that for us or the United States to do that for us. And those are things where those things don't all directly correlate to to the law today. But the last piece of the law that we're going to see is that there are also laws that we would categorize as moral laws. And those are the laws that we actually see Jesus affirm in his teachings that still apply today, that those are the laws that are part of what it looks like to be in God's kingdom, to be part of his partnership with humanity. The moral laws govern what it looks like for us to live in that partnership. They help us understand what it looks like to live with King Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 22, uh, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Trying to be stumped, as oftentimes the teachers were trying to stump him and see what he's going to say. Which of these laws should you follow? Which one's the most important? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's Matthew 22, 37. So today we're going to begin our journey starting to unpack what Jesus is talking about there. There's a lot in there. You could say that the Ten Commandments are summarized in that passage, and we're only going to begin to scratch the surface and, and today we're going to start just with that first commandment, just with that simple statement. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if I took a survey and asked you guys to all tell me, hey, what is the first thought that comes to mind? Um, I, I have a suspicion that my first thought when I started thinking through, what am I going to teach on? How is God moving in our church? What do I need to talk about today? Um, and, and you might have two reactions that, well, when we talk about the gods that we put before, before God, Um, It's really simple. I do not worship at the altar of Baal. Therefore, I am holding up the first law. I'm good. I got it. Check. Move on. Um, That's not where we're going to go today. You might also look at it and say, I'm good. But oh boy, that person over there, I know the God they serve. Mm. Have you seen their Facebook posts? Oh, man, I know their God. It's not my God. No, 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 no. If I'm honest, I thought maybe that second point was where today's message would go. Let's talk about the gods we see around us. Let's think about the things that we see around us that become points of fighting and points of conflict and points of worship in our culture. In our nation in the world. I thought maybe today was going to be this rallying cry of what we see in culture that we need to fight against. Anticipated we could we could challenge individualism and we could challenge nationalism and we could challenge eating too much-ism and whatever else comes to mind when we think about those things that other people worship before God or add to their worship of God. I didn't have peace. That that's where God wanted me to go today. Um, and as God would have it, as he often does, probably works this way in your life sometimes that you just you just know I'm not that's not something's not something's off. And so I needed to do some plank work. Matthew 7 says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, "Let me take that speck out of your eye?" Let me tell you about that thing over there that you're doing when there's a log in your own. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I asked God, okay, <clears throat> take a step back. What is my plank? What is that log in my eye? What are you saying before you can challenge or before as a church you go challenge that, what is what is the thing you're worshiping that that's that's coming before God and and I'm doing kind of an inventory and thinking through it and nothing comes to mind at first but I just not there yet I'm just I'm I'm struggling I'm thinking man I'm excited this is great you know God's gonna do something and then he's just saying no not yet and and as I'm journaling and I'm reading and I have very amazing godly input from others in my life friends colleagues my wife some of you I I began to hone in on something um Began to process in a sort of a Psalm 139 sort of way. Search me, oh God, know my heart. Try and know my thoughts. See if there's a grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. And God began to clarify in me, not looking at, okay, how does my God or the thing that I'm adding to God compare to everybody else around me, but just asking myself the question, God, what am I letting me letting rule my life today? Began asking the question, God, what What is dividing my heart from being singularly focused on you? And it started with an observation in my my journaling and in my prayers. and In the the passages of scripture I've been running to regularly for comfort or for reassurance. And I've noticed I've been experiencing a lot of anxiety lately. I've been experiencing an unsettled peace uh, or lack of peace i've been experiencing if i'm honest a lot of fear and as i began digging through those layers of all right god what am i fearful of am i fearful fearful of the pandemic or am i fearful of my kids and what school decisions best no no that's not really it I, i'm asking god what what is what is at the root of this what is what is causing this anxiety what is causing this lack of peace And I realized I've been making an idol, I've been making a god, out of perfection. Now, not an OCD-like perfection. I don't walk out here every day from my office and get the the hand sanitizer from the tree and walk back in and walk back out. It's it's not that. Or it's not a, hey, things have to look a certain way. If you come into my office, you'll see piles. I live in piles, organized piles, but they're still piles. Uh, I don't think most days it's a controlling type of perfection that I want my kids to look a certain way. I love my kids, they're amazing. they're also children. They make mistakes. Our house is never as clean as Shannon and I would like it to be. It's not a perfection that comes out in that way. it's It's kind of a different sort of perfection. Uh, maybe it'd be better described as kind of an I- a combination of an idol or a god of of success, approval, achievement, and and being right. Not a I'm going to argue with you till I'm right, but just I want to know. I was right. I did the right thing. I have the approval of, of you or whomever. Maybe the approval of Twitter or a bunch of likes or whatever. It, it's kind of a strange sort of idol. Uh, it's a strange God that uh, can't really be quantified by looking at my bank account. Uh, you'd see other things that can creep in and God can kind of make more important in my life if you did that. Um, it's not a I'm looking to achieve success because I need that. Lamborghini I saw drive down the road literally yesterday. Um, it's not that kind of idol, it's not that kind of God. Um, it, it also can't necessarily be quantified by looking at my calendar. Because uh, if you look at my calendar, you'd probably say, David, man, you're spending your time pretty well. Although, if you could calendar my thoughts, or you could calendar how late I stay up at night, reading this or that or the other thing to try to come up with the answer or the solution to this, Maybe that would be more revealing than I'd like it to be. In many ways, my idol of perfection or this idol of achievement, maybe even a, a hint of, of, of people-pleasing, is, is a pretty dangerous idol. And, and I want you to know why it's a dangerous idol, because I think it's an idol that if I asked any of you, other than maybe my wife or a couple really close friends, you probably would never call it out in me. It's a God that I can serve that's not obvious. It's a God that I can serve that I can actually kind of get away with worshiping at the God of achievement or success or perfection or having the right solution or being the guy with the answers. Because it's a it's kind of a God that's actually celebrated. It's kind of like I heard once a, a pastor said, you know, all the Ten Commandments we actually have like laws about. A lot of these things are things we don't really disagree about except for one of them. That Sabbath law, have you ever thought about how we reward workaholism, we reward overachievement, we reward the person that goes, 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 but God says you should rest? My idol's kind of like that. My idol's one where, like, I could be rewarded for, oh, man, you're problem-solving, you're doing this, you're doing that, David, you're leading great, you're doing this, but in reality, it's it's a God that I worship, it's a God that takes my single-hearted focus on the God of the universe, the creator who wants partnership with me, And it pulls me in this manward direction. I know it's a God I serve because I know my motivations. I know my heart. I know I want to be seen as wise, having a great plan, being the right guy for the job, pleasing everyone that's impacted by whatever it is. I could go down the list of the things where this is spurred up and oh, you wouldn't want to. It's... He'd say, David, that is so silly. Why would you think that? My motivation is to prove my worth. How else do I know it's an idol? How else do I know it's a God that I serve? It's the thing that keeps me from remaining in a posture of worship and trust in God alone. It's the thing that makes me overly confident some days because I can say, look at that. It, that was the right decision. Look look how successful that was. Those fans are amazing. Look at that. Just saying. You guys are feeling them. I can't really feel it up here. Can somebody turn one of those right at me? No, just kidding. Then I wouldn't be able to see my pages. It's the thing that can completely ruin me, though. It's the thing that can cause me to despair. It was so dumb. Why didn't I think of that? Why... Why God, why did I do that? And when I feel that idol, it's the thing that causes me then to have other things come up. Other sins pop up in my life. That's that's the thing about these worshiping other gods is they, they never have just one thing. They always pop up in other ways. It pops up in shortness towards my wife or my kids. It pops up in maybe a lack of empathy or understanding in a conversation I'm having with a friend that needs an ear, not a solution. Doesn't need me to be right, doesn't need me to have the answer, needs me to just be present. I ask myself the question, what what am I losing sleep at night over? What is making me angry? What makes me sad? What do I daydream about? What do I have nightmares about? And all these things kind of bring me back that I have made a God out of perfection and achievement and approval. And one more piece that makes it really, really tricky is that Satan twists this up in me. He comes at me with this thought that, David... Those are godly behaviors. You're striving for the kingdom. You're striving for, for the church. You're striving for serving this place that God's called you in. And yeah, you, you got to get a paycheck, so keep doing it right. You're doing great. My idol of perfection and achievement and approval is tied up in my work here, My tied up in my identity in a way that it gets really confusing and it gets really twisted up. It becomes that my work as a pastor or as a follower of Jesus is actually something that can become not a good thing. I knew my heart was divided when I read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 27 to 31. And I took this as a pretty stinging rebuke. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians 2 and says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power and the spirit, so that your might might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. I wish I could write those words. And some days I think I can. But there's other days that that's not the way I would write it. And when God told us we were to have no other gods before him, he was calling us to a faithful allegiance to him and him alone. He was calling us to a single-mindedness. He was calling us to see him as king, and only him. He was calling us to ask ourselves, what is ruling my life today? Is Jesus really king? I struggle to keep God on the throne in my daily life. How about you? I can give lip service to King Jesus. I can tell you what I believe about who he is, what he's done, but I'm also trying really hard to prove myself to people around me. Because in the end, I think sometimes I'm still doing battle with that instinct that I need to prove myself to God. I want to echo Paul's words that I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But if you looked at my heart, I also want you to see me, David Amon, the guy with the answer. I want to be so confident And what God is doing, that I can claim that I'm here in weakness and fear and trembling. My hands are shaking, but that's coffee. I want to know that I am not bringing any wisdom, but simply demonstrating the Spirit's work. I also really want approval. I desire affirmation. I want to know that my instincts were right, my strategy was on point, and my ways were the right ways. I struggle with the reality, I might be wrong. What if I fail? What if I made a mistake? So that's my confession this morning. I I have a divided heart. I want to worship King Jesus only. But I've lately struggled with the God of perfection and performance and approval ahead of being simply found faithful to Jesus. What about you? Is your heart divided today? Do you claim Christ and then run to that other thing that brings you momentary joy and comfort, satisfaction, affirmation? Why do we run to these gods? It's really complicated, it's also simple. We run to gods we can see. We're going to see that right after the Ten Commandments where this idol, this golden calf is being built because even though they're getting ready to get a message from God, the people of Israel just want to see God. Many times we also want a God we can control. Our idols are oftentimes tangible, at least more tangible than God feels in the moment. Often they feel good. They bring us joy or comfort. Maybe they boost our pride. Maybe it's a physical fulfillment. Maybe it's an emotional fulfillment. But in reality, our idols are are often good things because they're created by the creator. They're good things he gave us, but then they divide our hearts and they cause us to strive for control. And they strive to, we take them and we place God with this other good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, that becomes the thing we worship and then we find ourselves in the same place the people of Israel did. The people of Israel, let's let's back up. Let's get back into the story here for a minute. people of Israel had literally just watched God perform miracle after miracle through Moses. They had watched the gods of Egypt be torn apart by these plagues. Ryan did a great job of walking us through that a few weeks ago. They had this epic trek through the parted Red Sea. Like, unfathomable. I... I just crazy. They had the daily provision literally on their doorstep. Like, you just walk outside, go get your food, take enough on the Sabbath day, don't worry about it. Literally unbelievable thing after unbelievable thing. So why on earth do they need this reminder? They're literally coming out of this, coming to a mountain. God's thundering. There's, like, all this craziness. It's like, oh my word, we are definitely at the feet of God right now. This is crazy. I, like, this action movie that Aaron talked about, it's like, man, Prince of Egypt doesn't do it justice. Nothing does it justice to what this must have been like. And yet God says first of them, don't worship any other gods besides me. I can sometimes find myself sitting back and thinking, those foolish Israelites, what in the world were they thinking? I cannot believe they could not trust God after walking out their door. God provides for them. They walked through the sea. They, everything happened for them. God did all this. He didn't even ask anything of them. He didn't give them the commands first and say, hey, can you abide by these? Okay, now I'll save you. He did that first. But then I, then I think about it, and I realize my divided allegiance, the place I go to worship, the, the things that take my heart and my life and divide it from God, they might, they might look different, but they come from a similar place. What have I watched God do in my life that should keep me to him? That should hold me tight. What have I seen when he answered prayers in my life? Now, I don't get food from my front door just that drops out of the sky, but I, I don't ever walk to my refrigerator or my pantry and not find the things that I need. God has provided. It's not manna, but he has still provided. Even when God showed up right in front of the Israelites, they grumbled. Even when God did miracle after miracle, and ask nothing of them in return until later giving them, hey, okay, now you're part of my kingdom. Come, come walk with me. Live with me. They still turn back to idolatry. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, surrounded literally by every perfect thing, literally walking with God, literally, they tried to still go their own way. It wasn't enough to be made in the image of God, to be called into partnership with him. They wanted to be God. We want to be God. We want control. And sometimes kind of don't like God's way of doing things. Sometimes God's ways are super, super confusing. Sometimes his ways are super uncomfortable and really, really slow. And sometimes they're downright painful. And God knows our heart is gonna be to go astray. And so in Exodus 20, as God lays out these commands for His people, these conditions of His partnership with Him in this new place He's taking them, it's no surprise then that He starts with His command: "Don't put anything before Me. Don't do it. It doesn't work out." He knows the condition of their hearts. He knows He's going to regularly need to remind them to trust in Him, and He proves that He proves first that He's worthy of trust by being faithful and merciful and generous. And then saying, now worship me. Now stick with me. Don't stray from me. Here's what it looks like. I told Abraham this was going to happen. Don't you see? It's happening right here, right now. We're going to continue to see in this journey through Exodus, that people still have a hard time sticking with him, just like we do. Jesus talked about this a lot. Specifically as it relates to money, Jesus tells the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We're really good at finding earthly masters to serve. And most masters don't really look like a master or an idol or a god when it starts out. They actually don't advertise to us, I'm going to ruin your life. You think I'll make you happy, but you just wait. This job will eat you alive, ruin your wife and kids. This app will cause you to suffer from a horrible disease called FOMO, and that will literally cause you to lose sleep, lose your sanity, and maybe even lose your friends. I wish we got those warnings on these things. It would be so nice, wouldn't it? No, the things we worship in place of God or the things that we try to worship alongside of God are usually much more subversive. Listen to how Tim Keller puts it in a great little book if you want to pick one up on this topic. It's called Counterfeit Gods. In Ezekiel 14, 3, God says about the elders of Israel, this is a quote from Tim Keller, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Tim says, like us, the elders must have responded to this charge. Idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them at the center of our lives because we think we can give us they can give us significance and security and safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Listen to that quote from Ezekiel fourteen three again. The idols the elders had set up idols in their hearts. That resonates with me. My idol can't be seen, it's not sitting here. It's not a golden calf. My idol's not actually my agenda or my calendar or my email. It comes out in those ways, but it can't be seen. My idol's in my heart. An idol, a false god, is rarely a bad thing on its own. In fact, it's oftentimes a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, a god thing. That's when we know our heart is divided. That's when we know our lives are being ruled by something other than than God. What are you letting rule your heart today? What what is dividing your heart today? I want to give us a pause in our service to reflect, to examine our hearts. Not examine the heart of the person next to you. Not examine the heart of the church down the road. Not examine the heart of our nation or our culture or anything else, I want us to examine our hearts. I want us to enter a posture for several minutes of reflection. I invite you to join me in what I've been going through leading up to today. We're doing this together to reflect and to confess. And then finally, we're going to close with the good news. Because we're not bad news people here. We don't live (laughs) with this despair of, oh, no, woe is me. I'm so awful, terrible. That's where I go. That's how I know it's an idol, is I go to a woe is me. No, we're good news people. The gospel is good news. And so I'm going to give you some questions to think about. And then I'm going to give us some time for reflection and confession. And then I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. I'm going to read from Romans 7 and 8, where I think Paul was experiencing this very thing that I've been experiencing and the thing that I hope we experience and wrestle with as a church. And I want that to be the thing that takes us out of a posture of confession and reflection and into a place of assurance of who God is and what he's doing in the midst of that place we find ourselves so I'm gonna read some questions. I'm not gonna provide commentary on them. I'm just gonna read some questions. This is my list of questions from various resources. Um, and then I'm gonna just kinda close that out and then I'm just gonna, it's gonna be quiet. I'm gonna listen to the fans and the birds and the drag racing that may happen on the road. But we're gonna rest and we're just gonna be quiet. We're gonna confess and we're gonna reflect. And then after several minutes, I'm gonna interrupt. I'm gonna just go straight into Romans seven. We're gonna use that as our time to remind ourselves of who God is in the midst of us putting other things before him. Some questions to consider. What do you daydream about? If we opened your internet browser, how do you spend your time? What would your credit card statement tell us is more important, most important to you? How do you view politics and your role as a Christ follower living in this country? Has a political or ideological identity other than faithfully following Jesus taken first place? What makes you angry? What makes you despondent? What gets you most excited? Has a career goal taken over too much of your life? Is it hurting your marriage or your kids or even your priority for being on mission with God? What if you asked your coworker, or your spouse or your kids or your best friend these questions about yourself? And what if they were truly honest? What would they say matters most to you? Not in word, but in how you live your life. Some of the things you may discover as you ponder these things might be really, really good things that are just good and important things. They may be biblical things, but some of those answers may lead you to realize the ultimate things that have become our gods. They become the thing that distracts us from the one true God, from walking daily with King Jesus. They become the rulers of our hearts. So let's spend time reflecting and confessing before King Jesus. Romans 7, Romans 8. But I need something more. For if I know the law, but I still can't keep it, and if the power of my sin within me keeps sabotaging sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad and then I do it anyway. My decisions such as they are don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's a pretty obvious it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel and just when I least expect it they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps at the end of my rope is there no one who can do anything for me isn't that the question the answer thank god is that christ jesus can and does he acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where i want to serve god with all my heart and mind but i am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different with the arrival of jesus the messiah that fateful dilemma is resolved Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant in his son, Jesus. He personally took on the human condition, entered that disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always end up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now, what the law code asked for us but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them, that God's Spirit is in them. Oh, living and breathing God. I read that out of the message because I imagine that's what Paul would have said if he stood up here today. He'd give us this testimony of being a man with a divided heart, struggling back and forth with wanting to do this and this and this and realizing none of it brings fulfillment. He knows what it's like to experience the struggle of letting Christ rule our hearts. He reminds us that Christ's victory over sin, over my little gods, over your little gods, over our idols, they bring freedom to believe that Paul didn't have any wisdom. He didn't have any special insight. He just trusted in the Spirit and the work the Spirit was doing in him. So, if you sat there and confessed and repented and felt Beat up and burnt down, and oh my goodness, I want you to walk away saying, No, I am not living in condemnation. I am not guilty of these things. If I am in Christ Jesus, if you are trusting in Christ Jesus, you have hope and you have life and you have the Spirit working in you to free you from that sin that we do battle with daily. He might be calling you to make a change. He might be calling you to repent. He might be calling you to walk in a new direction, to confess, to walk alongside brothers and sisters in Christ in those things. But he's not calling you to live in guilt and condemnation and shame. He's calling us to look at what is ruling our hearts, to consider what we put in an ultimate position. But does he condemn you? Does he scold you? Does he tell you how disappointed he is? No, not at all. He's saying, don't let anything divide your heart from me. Don't store up treasures on earth. Don't make the world or money or politics or sex or su- success or comfort or your job, your master. It just won't satisfy You're not a slave to sin. And by the power of Christ, I have put those things to death. Trust me. Abide in me. Walk with me and let me walk with you. Confess to me and confess to your brothers and sisters and walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. Is King Jesus the ruler of our hearts and our lives today? Or is he crowded out by other gods? That's my question that I'm wrestling with. I hope you join me. And asking, is King Jesus the ruler of your heart and your life today? If he's not, invite him to be. Join me in trusting him daily for his provision, for his grace, for his kindness, for his goodness. Let's pray together. Father, we put so many things before you, and we are so grateful that in Christ Jesus, you have you see us as righteous you see us as good you see us not as failures you see us not as worshipers of other things you see us as your children and you rejoice in us as your creation god would you renew in us a right spirit would you transform our minds and hearts to worship you and you only would you create in us as individuals and as a church a place where you and you alone are worshipped. That when we gather here today, we worship at your throne, and we worship you only. That as we walk from this place and we wake up each morning, we worship you, we hold on to you, we confess to you, and we trust in you. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here to walk this road with me. That we get to walk this road together. That we walk this road as fellow sojourners until the day we see you for eternity. Christ Jesus, will you renew in us the things that are broken and are burdened and are weary, the things that have taken over our ability to worship you and you only. God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for Jesus and his son. We praise you for the law that shows us how far we are from you and yet how good you are to us. We Thank you for Jesus.